of 1 John, verses 6 through 13, where we read these words, This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his Son. Anyone who believes in the Son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe God has made him out to be a liar, because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Thanks be to God once more for this great passage from his own inspired Word. Now on these Sunday evenings we are drawing gradually to, to the end of the great letter of First John, the book of First John, and discovering that even in its concluding teaching and remarks uh, there is much of instruction in this very wonderful portion of Scripture. Last Sunday evening, we were considering together the three tests that John has given us so consistently throughout this portion of Scripture, the tests that are designed to show us whether we are genuine Christians as opposed to counterfeit and spurious professors of the faith. And we saw last Sunday evening that for the first time in John's letter, the three tests were taken and were combined together in verses 1 through 5 of this last chapter of his book. Now tonight we've arrived at the very last part of John's exhortation and teaching before what we might call the postscript to John's letter begins from verse 13 or verse 14 to the very end of the chapter. This section that is before us then this evening, verses 6 through 13, is the very last part of John's exhortation and instruction to the church of God in a formal sense. Now we must ask as we approach it this evening, what is the purpose of these six or seven verses? And I think there can be no possible doubt or ground of doubt in our minds that the subject is assurance. He has written these verses to demonstrate the evidence and the grounds on which true Christian faith ultimately rests, so that we in turn might be encouraged to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have assurance in him. 
and I believe you can see that purpose in the repeated use of the same words throughout these seven or so verses. In the King James Version, which some of you may have this evening, the word witness or record or testimony occurs no less than nine times in seven verses. And if you have the New International Version with you, the single word testimony occurs some nine times in five verses. If you look at verse 6, it is the Spirit who testifies. In verse 7, the three that testify. In verse 9, man's testimony is received by us. How much more should we receive God's testimony? And again in the same verse, the testimony of God. And in verse 10, this testimony is in his heart, in the testimony that God has given. And again in verse 11, this is the testimony. Now John's purpose, beloved, I think is very evident and clear to consider, as I say, the solid evidence on which our faith rests, the grounds upon which we have biblical faith that Jesus is the Christ and correspondingly are able to have full assurance of faith in him. Beloved, we don't pull out of the air the grounds on which our faith rests. It rests ultimately upon the testimony that God has given. But this testimony is rooted and anchored in historical events in the life and ministry and the death of Jesus, as we will see. Now, I want to divide the passage this evening into the three thoughts that are before you on the sermon note sheet, the three witnesses in verses 6 through 8, and then secondly, the divine and human testimony in verses 9 through 10, and then thirdly, God's own testimony that occurs in verses 11 through 13, in which he speaks the final word of assurance to the believing heart. Now let's look then at this passage under these three divisions. First of all, the three witnesses in verses 6 through 8. Now it's important for us to realize that John is doing something at the close of the letter he has not done since the letter started in chapter 1. Let me remind you, and let me approach it this way, but there are three purposes you remember in John's writing his book, his letter. One of these purposes was the need to repeat and expand Christ's new commandment, that we should love one another. And you remember the many passages through this whole letter where he has come to us and he's exhorted us again and again that if we love God truly, the evidence of that love will be shown in our love for the brethren. He's fulfilled that purpose. Another purpose, the second one, was to give us assurance of salvation who are truly in Christ. And you will have noticed how often he has raised the subject of being assured and convinced in our faith throughout the letter. But the third purpose, you remember, with which he began chapter 1, was to stress the historical grounding of the Christian faith. 
If you look back there at chapter 1 of the letter, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked at and our hands have touched, that, he says, is what we are proclaiming to you concerning the word of life. The desire to stress the historical grounding of the Christian faith. Now, he has not returned to that subject until now. It's there in chapter 1. It's also here very fittingly. You notice at the very end of the letter, the very last part of the teaching that John is officially giving to the church before his lovely postscript ends the letter, he sees the need to take up this opening theme again to the encouragement of the Christian's faith. He wants to join it to the others to show that the historical data concerning Christ's life and ministry are the basis, the very fundamental basis of the Christian's assurance of salvation. You see, I haven't drawn my belief about the Lord Jesus, as I said a moment ago, out of the air. If I had done, then your opinion is as good as my opinion, and ultimately there is no rational ground on which we may test what is true from what is false. And that's the connection, too, incidentally, that this passage has with the preceding verse, verse 5. If you look at verse 5 of chapter 5, John says, Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God, is a Christian. Well, where do I get that kind of belief? And John's answer is that it is based in the evidence embodied in the testimony concerning him. And that testimony is borne witness to by the three witnesses that we're going to look at in a moment. Now, before we do it, let me remind you that what we're dealing with this evening is not a remote issue or concern. So much in modern theology and philosophy today is a denial for our faith to be rooted in historical facts. If you go into neo-orthodoxy, the system of theology set up by Karl Barth, one of the great theologians of this century, who has influenced profoundly theological seminaries all over the world, including the United States. You find that basically Karl Barth denies or wants to deny some of the objective facts of Scripture. And he leaves many issues of the Christian faith floating in the realm of projection and philosophy. And it's the same with existentialism today, with its foremost teacher, Soren Kierkegaard, who basically took the view that it doesn't matter really whether Jesus was historical and his life and death are historically recounted in the Gospels. We have the idea of Jesus. And that's enough. And we must form our faith around that idea, severed from its roots in history. And he ends up with a definition of the Christian faith that is a blind leap in the dark. And you hope that your feet land on something solid on the other side. 
and I've seen even in some Christian homes the famous picture by the artist Salvador Dali showing the Lord Jesus upon the cross, but the cross is hanging between heaven above and the earth beneath. It's not anchored in the earth. It's there between the two realms of heaven and earth. And many Christians seem to think that this is a truly orthodox symbol. And they have this picture in their homes. But you see, what this man is saying is the very thing that John is seeking to witness against in this passage that our faith is rooted in history. It's not projected there in space where we can make up our own thoughts about how we understand Jesus, who he is and what he has done and what we are to believe in this conceptual realm that is somewhere between heaven and earth. The cross is rooted firmly upon the earth. And the New Testament's answer to all these distortions of biblical truth in our age is that our faith is grounded in indubitable and unanswerable facts, in actual historical events and personages that took place in history. And you undercut and take away this foundation and you take away our salvation. So John, you see, marshals these three witnesses to Jesus in which the testimony of God the Father is found. Now look at verses 6 through 8. And you notice that the three witnesses there are the Spirit, the water, and the blood. Now let me say that we've come to one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament because there's a difficulty in the text itself. And there's a second difficulty in the meaning of those three witnesses, particularly in the water and the blood. Now look at the passage as you have it open before you. I must say to those of you here this evening who are lovers of the King James Version, and I'm going to tread on your toes tonight, the King James Version has followed inferior texts of the Greek New Testament so that if you have a King James Version, the whole of verse 7 should be taken out of your Bible. It should be excised about the heavenly witnesses. And also the words in verse 8, in earth, should be taken out, as they've been taken out of all the modern versions. Correctly, I believe, the New International Version and uh, the ASV and others. And... The idea of three heavenly witnesses is not wrong necessarily, scripturally, but the point is, it wasn't in the original Greek text. And it came in very late in history, we believe around 800 AD, and was incorporated in a very late Greek manuscript after that, and so came into the King James Version. Now what John actually wrote is what the modern versions give in verse 7 and in verse 8. There are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. They testify to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And these three, says John, are in agreement. Now that is the text, I believe, that should be before us. But the second difficulty is the meaning of the text. What does Spirit and water and blood really mean? Now, it's enigmatic, 
It's twice mentioned, you will notice in verse 6, Jesus Christ who came by water and blood. And then in verse 8, the Spirit is conjoined with the water and the blood. Now what is certain is that John was establishing the historical factualness of the earthly life of Jesus. But let me then say that the precise certainty of what these phrases mean is really beyond our reach. I can only suggest something to you this evening. We no longer know the full significance of John's theological vocabulary. But surely it was very familiar to the church of the first century that was under his ministry. Now there are three possible interpretations of the water and the blood. For instance, one of these interpretations is that the reference is to that which flowed out of Christ's pierced side as he was crucified. And it seems to be a good start, because in the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, I believe, or thereabouts, you find the account of the crucifixion of Jesus, and significantly, when his side was pierced by the centurion to ensure that he was truly dead and could be taken down from that awful instrument of torture, the cross, there flowed out from his wounded side both water and blood. And associated with that passage, you notice also, is the testimony given by the centurion who testified that he is a son of God. So the two passages would seem to be similar, because the theme of John 5 is also testimony and speaks of water and blood. But I suggest to you that that cannot be the meaning of this particular witness. The order of the words, for one thing, is reversed in the gospel compared with John's letter. And also, the gospel says that these things flowed out from him, whereas the epistle says that Jesus came through water and blood. And so the thought is very, very different in each. So I suggest we should discount that interpretation. Now, our reformers at the time of the Reformation taught that the reference to water and blood certainly refers to the sacraments. And you can pick up Calvin with great delight and read him to your heart's content, and he makes much of intensive study of the Old Testament rites of purification and the water and the blood similarly representing to us the sacrament of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I suggest to you that our beloved mentor, Calvin, is almost certainly wrong in this passage once more. Now, usually Calvin is right, let me say that, and very rarely is his interpretation amiss. But you see, the symbols are not entirely appropriate. Water may symbolize baptism, but blood is not the equivalent in Scripture for communion. The element for the communion or the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is bread throughout the Scriptures. And blood can only be spoken of in a very loose sense as being associated with it. It's not the central idea. It's not an unimportant idea. Of course it isn't, involving the death of our Lord. But for blood to sim symbolize communion seems to be going beyond the meaning of this text. Well, what is the answer? Well, most likely, 
Water refers to the baptism of Christ. And the significance is that John is appealing to this as Jesus identifying himself with man in sin. He really came. A real person, John is telling us. He was baptized by John in Jordan. That was the commencement of his official ministry. And in that baptism at Jordan, when the Father testified to him in the voice that spoke from heaven, this is my beloved Son, hear ye him. Or rather, I should say, in whom I am well pleased. You have there the very thought that John wishes to convey to us in this passage. But Jesus has come not as a figment of men's imagination or as the Gnostics suggested in John's day. The Spirit of God came upon Jesus, the ordinary man at his baptism, and left him before he went to the cross of Calvary. But here is a Jesus who has identified himself with human nature and identified himself with man's sin by coming through water that he might, in God's providence and in his plan for him, go on to offer himself in that blood offering of Calvary by which man's sin might be taken away. Now that would appear to be the meaning of water. But you see, the meaning of blood is almost certainly a reference to his death. We have the commencement of his ministry in his baptism. We have the conclusion of it in his atoning death upon the cross. So John here, you see, is opposing the Gnostic teaching, which said that there is more, in a sense, to Jesus than being the man anointed with God, the one man who stayed the same after his baptism, through his life, onto the cross. They said that the true Christ left Jesus before the experience of the cross. And John is emphasizing there is one historical Lord Jesus who was present on the earth, who identified himself with sinners in his baptism, who was the same person who was crucified under the ministry of the same Holy Spirit, under the speaking of the Father's same good pleasure for us sinners at the cross of Calvary. And oh, my friends, as we think of this, you see, the message is that he took our sin and he bore it, that one same holy, undefiled person. And here John would marshal then the two witnesses. But what of the Spirit? Well, very quickly on this in verse 8, he fulfills our Lord's promise that when the Spirit would come into the world, he would testify and bear witness to him. And what we have there in verse 8 is John's reflection upon the Spirit work in the world, along with the historical evidence of the humanity of Jesus and his atoning work. We have the witness of the Spirit drawing out and applying these things to the consciences and the hearts of all true believers. So there are three witnesses, the water, the blood, conjoined 
with the witness of the Holy Spirit of God. A perfect life, a saving death, wrought with convicting power by the confirming witness of the Holy Spirit to the Christian heart. Beloved, in the light of these things, how can we ever say that the evidence for our Christian faith is in that conceptual realm where your view of it may be one thing and my view of it another thing and a third person's view of it something else. There is a unity in the evidence and the grounds that God the Father has given to us in the water confirming the witness of the blood and the blood confirming the witness of the Spirit and the Spirit confirming the testimony of those previous two, the three witnesses. Now the second thing, and more quickly on this, is the divine and human testimony in verses 9 through 10. You notice what John says, we accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater. Now the three things that I think he wants to convey to us. First of all, that God's testimony in the three witnesses, you notice, is greater than human testimony. Now, the thought is a very simple one behind this. In the Old Testament, of course, in order for someone committed or convicted, I should say, of a crime to be tried, there must be two witnesses at least to testify against him at the mouth of two or three witnesses shall the matter be established. Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. Now, John's argument, as I say, is very simple, that if a double or triple witness in a human court is evidence enough for the fact to be believed, how much more should we believe the testimony of the God who cannot lie? And that's his thought there. The divine testimony is greater than the human. Now, the second thing here is that the work of the Holy Spirit brings this testimony. Do you see that in verse 10? If we have a human testimony and we accept it, here we have a testimony that is born into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. The Reformers called this testimony the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. And it is an addition to what we receive as evidence and testimony from other sources, from the Scripture, from the witness of Christians, from the preaching of God's Word. And John is telling us that if these other things are substantial and are to be believed, how much more is our privilege when the Holy Spirit comes with that testimonium internum, sancti spiritu, the internal confirming witness of God the Holy Ghost within us. And John is cross-referencing certainly Galatians 4 verse 16 where Paul writes, Because you are sons, God has sent forth his Spirit into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, a testimony given to the believer that the evidence is true. So you see what we're saying. God's testimony is greater than man's. The Holy Spirit confirms that testimony. And verse 10 also, and the third thought, that to meet such testimony with unbelief is outright rebellion and sin. 
And you notice how solemn a thing it is then for anyone to refuse this threefold testimony of God. It is, says John in verse 10, tantamount to calling God a liar. And this is the appalling blasphemy of unbelief that brings down the condemnation of Almighty God upon the impenitent sinner. It amounts to saying God, who cannot lie, cannot be trusted by me. And that is the heinous nature of unbelief. Now, beloved, as we think of unbelievers around us, very often we don't treat unbelief like that, do we? We tend to think of it as a very little and sometimes an unimportant thing. In Scripture, it is never unimportant. And Stott says in his commentary on this passage that unbelief is not a misfortune to be pitied. It is a sin to be deplored. Its sinfulness lies in the fact that it contradicts the word of the one true God and thus attributes falsehood to him. And what a serious condition it is to find that I am possessed with a heart of unbelief. I have made that God who cannot lie into a liar. So there then you have that second thought of God, of John, the divine and human testimony. Now thirdly, as I begin to draw to a close, there is God's own testimony in verses 11 to 13. Now the question is, through all our study this evening, what is it that has been testified to? What is the essential content of this revelation and this faith which is ours as Christian men and women? And in a sense it's been answered all through the epistle as we've seen. But John now gives to us in verses 11 through 13 a concise summary of what constitutes that testimony to which we are committed. And this is the testimony, you notice, that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now this is what we've been about all these long Sunday evenings over a number of months. The matter that has been before us is the testimony of God. Have I rightly appropriated it? Am I truly in a biblical understanding of it? Does my life bear the marks of one who has been changed by it? Because it is a testimony, ultimately, John tells us, that concerns salvation. This is the testimony of God that he has given us eternal life. And that eternal life resides in his own beloved Son. The heart of it is to be found in Jesus as the Son of God and in him only and nowhere else in all the wide universe of God. Just think of it as we finish this evening. Eternal life. This is what it's all about. This is why I need to be assured in my faith need to be convinced that there is grand historical evidence for all that God has shared with me in this testimony that leads to eternal life. This is why 
I need to listen to the witness of the water and the blood and the one who came by water and blood. This is why I need the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, because I am on the high road to eternal life, the essence of salvation. And it takes us back, doesn't it, to chapter 1, to the glories of Jesus, to the word of God, to that which we have seen and touched and handled with our hands of the very word of life who is himself the eternal life of the ever-blessed God. Now that's what it's all about. And you see, if I simply think of eternal life as life that is unending, that goes on forever and ever, I've missed the real meaning of it. Eternal life is not a duration of time merely. It is above all else the union with the person who is himself the eternal life of God Almighty. And beloved, that's the point that John is going to leave us at the end of this letter. Do I have this eternal life? Not a thing, but a person found exclusively in him. Am I in Christ this evening? Do I have, verse 13, the assurance that he speaks of eternal life? Because the whole purpose of his writing, I write these things to you who are true believers in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Full assurance for the believer. Beloved, if these long studies in one John have done nothing else for you, I trust they've brought you again and again as we've looked at these tests singly and then together and all the other exhortations of this epistle, but they've brought you to the position where you can say with a newfound assurance from the heart, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed to him against that coming day of judgment. Full assurance. This has now been done to the best of John's ability. The testimony of God. It doesn't rest upon anything in ourselves, but it rests in relying upon God's own world. And does this world say to us this evening, ah, oh, but your faith is presumption? We say, but the presumption lies on your side, for it is far greater presumption not to take the testimony of this God who cannot lie to heart when it is ever to believe it. Do you tonight accept the testimony of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you this evening for a passage that deals with the great subject of the witnesses and the grounds for our Christian faith and the substance upon which it is built. And we are eternally grateful tonight for him who came by water and blood not by water only, but also by blood. And for those three great witnesses, the water, 
the blood and the spirit, but amount to the testimony of God toward his Son, but in him is eternal life and in no other. Enable us to cleave closely to him, to believe his word, to receive his testimony, and to be assured of the knowledge of Christ, which is in itself eternal life. This we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.